She's not tanning, look at us go Watching pitch perfect, twilight is torn, man Weekend is gone, watching her love Rose that went by that you don't know And I can't drink her, this is her time Away we go, mm -hmm. away we go Away we go, mm -hmm. the Annie Kendrick show Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 22 of Kicking It with Kendrick. Um, this was episode 22 is like that's like a full season of a show, I think. I said, or is that 26 episodes? The 22. I think it kind of depends. Seasons of shows, it, it really depends on the show. Like, there's plenty that only have like eight episodes, but I think 22 is usually like where something like Supernatural will do it. Or Super. Yeah. yeah, sitcom. Oh, please don't compare us to Supernatural. Oh, God. I've actually never seen Supernatural. I can't judge it. Okay, that show ran for 15 years. That's a good comparison. That, okay, that's a good point, yeah. And I think that they had pretty close to consistently sized seasons. Like, I don't know if it was always 22 episodes, but it might have been like 22 one year and then 23 or something. Uh, so <laughs> it's 22 to 24, and then they had one season that was short because of the writer's strike. And yes, I have that information in my brain. So <laughs> welcome to the show, me. Really <laughs> yeah, speaking of me, uh, here's our... Uh, lovely guest Matthew Simpson from the Awesome Friday podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome, <laughs> Welcome Matthew. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> why don't you? Uh, why don't Why don't you say a little bit about Awesome Friday podcast? I've been listening to it a little bit, and um, we haven't had too many other podcasts. We've had other guests, but we haven't had too many other guests with their own podcast yet on the show. And I think the only one, um, the only ones I can think of right now, they like exclusively talk about movies but on awesome friday you guys at least in your last like even just in your last five episodes you've had an episode like exclusively on video games you've had episodes exclusively on movies exclusively on tv and then like episodes of just sort of all of them yeah so we're a little bit all over the map um and and the the reason for that is that there's two of us and it's kind of it's kind of multiple shows at the moment. <laughs> um, so the main show airs on, we do, we publish it for the weekend. So usually uh, we do awesome Friday on Sundays, which I know doesn't make sense. Uh, and we try and focus and it's Simon and I, and we both try and focus on two new things and uh, whether that's movies or TV shows lately, there's been more TV shows, but it's that time of year. So that makes sense. Uh, it's the awesome Friday Gaming episodes are 100% Simon. He produces and records them himself, and he puts them out typically on Wednesdays. He hasn't done one in a couple of weeks, but he has one in the in the can, I think, for next week or the week after. So and we're sort of in the middle of expanding. We re relaunched our website in 2020, 2020 and uh, mostly with writing, and then we relaunched the podcast, which initially started our website like 12 years ago. We relaunched that last year. So we're starting to expand a little bit. You should start seeing some interview episodes coming up soon too, which would be fun. Oh, nice. Any uh, any really, really cool interviews you want to talk about or can you not even mention those yet? Uh, so I should have an episode coming out this week with, I don't know if you saw it last year, but the director of a film called Tin Can, which is a Canadian indie genre film. Uh, interestingly enough, an end of the world type film as well. Um, his name is Seth A. Smith. Uh, I also got to interview earlier this year that's going to be running in time for the Canadian Film Fest, a, a woman called Katie Boland. She directed a film called We're All in This Together. Uh, and there's another one that I'm actually pretty hyped about, but it's not confirmed yet, so I don't want to say it. But I have one other that's with like a longtime British character actor who I adore, who I'm I'm very much looking forward to speaking to, and I don't want to jinx it by saying his name. <laughs> and... Um... We tend to record these, I think we're recording this one like two weeks before it comes out. I don't know if that's an exact number, but just because, just in case any of the stuff you've talked about, or you just mentioned is already out by that point, I will link to all of that in the show notes. 
Awesome. At least one of them, I think, will be. Nice. So I, I, I've already said welcome, but welcome once again to our Anna Kendrick <laughs> podcast. And the reason that I say that is you are on an Anna Kendrick podcast and we want to know your thoughts on Anna Kendrick. I mean, as a performer, what are your favorite movies? Uh, so I really like Anna Kendrick. I think she's cute as a button and I think she's very funny. Um, <laughs> top three movies of hers. It's kind of a tough question. They're all probably kind of recent the movie we're going to be talking about in the back half of this is not one of them. Um, Fair enough. Um, it's interesting because I think her best film, my favorite film that she happens to be in is probably 50-50, which is a Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Seth Rogen movie, um, where she plays a supporting role as a counselor to a character who has uh, cancer. Um, I am a huge fan, much to my wife's annoyance, of Pitch Perfect. Uh, and actually, I think she's quite good in uh, 2018's A Simple Favor. I don't know if you guys saw that one, but that's her and Blake Lively. We haven't talked about that one yet, but I do have the book right here because we're about to talk about it in a very shortly upcoming episode. Nice. I really like that movie. Yeah, I, I remember really liking it. I actually bought that book originally for my mom after seeing the movie because I was like, this makes me want to read the book. And because it makes me want to read the book, but it's also vaguely a mystery. I'm going to give it to my mom so she can read it and then she can give it back to me and I can read it and we can have something to talk about. Yeah. I, th I think it's a really interesting movie because it's kind of like a weird noir thriller that's directed by an improvisational comedian director. So it's tonally a little bit all over the map. Like in some ways it's kind of a mess, but it's just trashy enough that I really liked it. <laughs> It has shades of Gone Girl, but it's also directed by Paul Feig. So, like, yeah, exactly. Like, it, it, it's you can tell where, like, none of it is terribly. It's not a comedy, right? But you can definitely tell where there's like comedy sensibilities in the directing touches. It's 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 a fun movie, and also mm -hmm. Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick are just really good in it. And uh, yeah, I think it's a good movie. I like it. And it came out during that one or two years where Henry Golding seemed like he was in everything. I think he was only in three things, but they were like really high profile movies at the time. Because he yeah, was also was... in Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, I can't remember what the third one was, but there was... A... Oh, he was in... The Gentleman was a couple years later, wasn't it? That was... That might have been the next year? I think The yeah. Gentleman was early 2020 and A Simple Favor was late 2018. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, both of you, Pierre and Matthew, I want to take you back to a time that I'm sure you guys will remember pretty well, but uh, back in the mid-2000s, specifically 2012, do you guys remember all of the all of the hubbub around 2012? Apparently, I think that 2012, if you translated the Mayan calendar a certain way, that was just the last day of the Mayan calendar, or at least that's how it was, like, reported on. I looked up, I've... I do a lot of like world building stuff on the side. So I actually looked up how the Mayan calendar works. It's just the end of one of their cycles. They have really, really, really long year cycles just because of the, how it works. But uh, anyway, 2012 was supposed to be a big apocalyptic event or something. And like, obviously 2012 came and went, but right around that time, for whichever reason, we got, we started to get a bunch of apocalypse movies ranging from, Things like, uh, ranging from things like just regular old disaster movies, but on a much bigger scale to disaster movies, I guess not on a big scale. I can't think of any right now, but we got like zombie movies and stuff. And then of course, right after 2012 came and went and the world didn't get destroyed, we started getting rapture movies for some reason. And like, there were a lot of these, not rapture movies specifically, those as well, but we just had like a big time where there was so many disaster movies and are, are we still getting that many of those because i think i mean I, I guess you said tin tin can but i, I mean we definitely sort of come and gone yeah we sort of had a lot like in the, in the lead up to 2012 and like the year or two after there was definitely a lot of like the world is going to end type movies and in the years mm. since there's been a lot of post-apocalyptic movies so i think there was a bit of a shift there because, like, in, in the lead-up, you had movies like 2012 and Knowing and stuff where, like, the end of the movie is, like, the world ending. And mm -hmm. then in the years since, you have movies like 
Mad Max would be a good one. Um, Snowpiercer, lots of alien invasion movies, lots of like uh, the Maze Runner came out after that. Uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is an alien attack, you know, that really shifted from the world is ending to the world had ended, which I find really interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess you said Maze Runner, and that just reminded me also Divergent. And right around that time is when The Hunger Games was big. So why was it that like, end of the world and dystopian fiction got big around the same time? It's not that these things haven't always existed. But like, what was there about the mid 2000s? that uh, the world was about to end in movies, it didn't end in real life, and then the world had ended in movies, just out of nowhere. Uh, I Honestly, I think it's just that it's a good story, right? I think that the end of the Mayan calendar that lots of people did latch on to was, it's a good, it's a good story, and we tend, as a, as a society, tend to mm. latch on to good stories. In the same way, there was a lot of, like, techno thrillers towards, you know, uh, Y2K and the rise of the internet. There was a lot of like the matrix and the net and all of that stuff leading into there. Whenever there's like a good sort of societal distraction type story that, I mean, I don't think anyone really believed. I mean, I'm sure there were some people on the fringes who believed the world was going to end in 2012, but I don't think people really believed it was going to happen, but also everyone I knew was talking about it at the time. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's a, it becomes like a pervasive narrative regardless. Right. Yeah, I also got to say that like uh, 2012 was like a very big disaster movie with, you know, floods and earthquakes and stuff. And like, this is much, much later. Literally, I think, I think the movie 2012 came out in 2009. Maybe it was, maybe it did come out in 2012. I can't remember. But like 10 years later, we got just, we got Don't Look Up, which kind of actually fits into this same genre of movie because it's also a disaster movie. But like way, way later, really missed the ball. But like, I actually got to wonder about that because like Don't Look Up is very obviously a climate change movie and it's a climate change disaster movie. And like, Mm -hmm. we actually did kind of, I think 2012 was in a little bit of a way too. And so like... I was going to say, I mean, 2012 specifically, first first off, I have an interesting connection to 2012 tangentially but uh also roland emmerich just likes to make end of the world type movies so because he did 2012 and the day after tomorrow and there was one more like all in a row right so, isn't like the the day the day the world stopped or something or is that someone else it's the day after tomorrow was... was his the the day um... the earth stood still was uh scott derrickson with Keanu reeves starring i think oh okay yeah. I think. no i didn't realize that was scott derrickson I might be wrong about that. That that my brain is not always reliable, <laughs> but it's a remake of a classic. Mm-hmm. Very different than the old one, though. Like oh, I guess would you I don't remember specifically. But... Would you count Independence Day as one of those? The after tomorrow, twenty. Yeah, although I think like kind of what I what I was intending to get at is like. Um, with 2012 and the day after tomorrow and stuff, you had like the world is ending in some natural disaster, which is obviously kind of different from something like Independence Day or another movie that came out in 2013, actually, The World's End, which are the world is ending through aliens. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of, uh, I mean, the reason I brought up Don't Look Up is Don't Look Up is obviously. I mean, it's pretty hard. It's not dressed up at all. They, like, didn't go through any of the work to, like, dress that up as something else. It's just very open and clear about what it is. But I wonder, but I have to think, like, obviously climate change has been something people have worried about for years, for for many, many years. But in 2012, like, you had these movies that were, at their core, natural disaster movies. And, like, I wonder if those are... You know, I, I have to think like that's it's the same anxieties as today. It's just dressed up in, oh, the world is ending because of Mayans, I guess. <laughs> well, I think there's an argument to be made that we live in far less subtle times today than we did 10 years ago. That's also true. You know, I think that, you know, in, tw- in 20, you know, 2010 to 2012, when these movies were all coming out, we could sort of felt that we could afford to be like, we'll tell the story of the end of the world and we'll use some metaphor to do it. And now you have movies like Don't Look Up where they're like, the world's ending and it's your fault. Mm -hmm. Like, 
our fault, yes, but also you, you watching the screen, your fault specifically. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, I think our sensibilities have changed since, uh, I mean, if nothing else, since 2016. So, mm-hmm. so actually, the more that we talk about this, the more I think that the, the genre I originally wanted to get to is actually super removed from this because <laughs> right around 2013, actually specifically in 2013, there was just a wave of rapture movies for some reason. Cause that was the year that we got the movie we're going to talk about today, rapture Palooza. And in the same year, we also got the movie. This is the end. And the next year we got left behind. And like before that, I don't even, I, I think, I think when I looked up rapture movies on Google, uh, knowing came up. I don't know that knowing is specifically the rapture, but if it is, that was, you know, the year before when you're making a movie about the rapture, these ones like clearly are not the same anxieties as someone making a movie about climate change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't don't know about clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, this one, I mean, I I think all three of the three, the ones you just mentioned are all kind of different, right? Like, this one, the one we're going to talk about has its own themes, but this is the end is very much about, am I a good person? And mm-hmm. Left Behind is kind of, I haven't actually read or watched Left Behind. I'm always kind of morbidly curious, but I can't quite bring myself to do it. But it's, it's like, it's, it's basically like the, the ultra religious, religious version of that, right? Like the people who are, who are the bad people are the bad people bad mm-hmm. is what I understand it to be. Yeah. Um, Pierre, did you ever see Left Behind? I haven't, no. I don't remember exactly why I was so enthusiastic about going to see it in theaters, but I dragged a friend to it (laughs) the year it came out because it actually came out in a theater. And uh, I remember leaving the theater, I turned to him and I said, I am so sorry. (laughs) I'll make it up to you somehow. I'm so sorry that I've done this. Did you? Well, it's definitely one of those, like, peak lazy Nicolas Cage movies and it's uh, sort of like it's a very Christian movie masquerading as a mainstream movie too right it's a sort of a double whammy yeah by having Nicolas Cage they managed to bring it out into real theaters that that's kind of it it was <laughs> I mean Nicolas Cage is actually pretty good in it but I don't think I've personally ever seen a Nicolas Cage performance I didn't like I mean even when I say he has his, you know, lazy Nicolas Cage, his lazy performances are never not interesting. Mm-hmm. So, like, as we're talking about end-of-the-world movies, I think, like, that's what's kind of interesting is, like, the themes of these rapture movies are basically, like, am I a good person? But, like, clearly that's not the theme of something like 2012 or any of the Roland Emmerich movies. Like, Moonfall doesn't care whether or not it's ba- it's main characters are good people it cares that the moon is falling into the earth so like (laughs) i kind of wanted to take a look at some of these movies and sort of analyze like what makes them what makes a good end of the world movie what makes a bad end of the world movie and like are these actually you know are they even the same at all because i think you know talking to you guys about it the uh these rapture movies are basically their own separate thing even though they still use the sort of costume of and of the end of the world like i mean like in terms of character development or like well i mean like in terms of themes in general because like i don't think 2012 and rapture palooza have very much in common other than that the world is ending and the more that i talk to you guys about it like well okay rapture palooza is a little different but like this is the end is about being a good person uh like am i a good person 2012 is about a guy going on a road trip because there's an earthquake so, <laughs> well, first off, I think it's unfair to say that Rapture Palooza and This Is the End don't have anything in common because they both prominently feature Craig Robinson. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's, <laughs> that's a good point. If I if I said they don't have anything in common, that was not what I meant to say. They they have less in common than they have less in common thematically than I originally thought. That's okay. That's, but then that's again, fair. I guess I guess maybe we'll talk about that. Like. Yeah, that is actually, yeah, they, they both have Craig Robinson. How did Craig Robinson end up in both of these movies in the same year? It was pretty uh, that's, 
yeah, it's interesting because I mean, not to jump the gun and get into this, but uh, the movie we're going to the the Ravager Palooza is full of people who I normally find funny. Like it's, <laughs> it seems on paper to be a really good idea. Mm. So I think he's probably in it because he saw the script and the people who were making it were like, "Yeah, let's do this." <laughs> it's so I have a I have a small story like from way back that's barely even related to end of the world movies, but it will come back to this. Uh, do you guys remember the year that do you did have either of you seen the movie Observe and Report? Nope. Yes. Okay. Observe and Report is a movie that came out in 2008. It stars Seth Rogen as a mall cop and he's like chasing down a, a serial flasher on the mall premises. And that's the whole plot of the movie. Like there's more that goes on, but that's the central plot of the movie is that he's trying to find this flasher. 2008 mall cop movie with Seth Rogen. Uh, right before that, in that same year, Paul Blart, mall cop, another movie starring uh, on paper, supposedly funny people. Like at the very least, they're all comedians. A movie about a mall cop comes out and it was bad. Like I don't, I, I'm, have you guys seen Paul Blart? It was not good. I have no good things to say about it. I have seen Paul I, I have seen it, but I haven't seen it since it was new. And uh, I blocked most of it out. But what's but the reason I bring those up is Paul Blart comes out 2008, invents a micro-genre of mall cop movies. Like, not this wasn't a thing that happened. There weren't a lot of mall cop movies, but all of a sudden it did kind of like... It, it seemed like a marketable thing. Like you can make a movie about mall cops. I think in gen, in in total, they maybe got five out of five movies. Like all of Hollywood got maybe five movies out of it. But micro genre because like there were all the, there were movies now about mall cops. You could go into Google and search mall cop movies. Paul Blart comes out, creates this micro genre. The very same year, the best movie in the micro genre comes out, starring and at least partially written by Seth Rogen. And, like, honestly, Paul Blart's not even worth talking about in the same conversation as that. 2013, we get the exact same thing. There's, like, a micro-genre of Rapture movies. Not that these haven't happened before, but just out of nowhere, we get Rapture Palooza, we get Left Behind, and we get This Is The End, which isn't Rapture, but is another apocalypse movie. And then, or no, This Is The End is a Rapture movie. I meant to say uh, The World's End. But anyway... Mm -hmm. Same year, Seth Rogen comes out with This Is The End, his directorial debut, blows the other ones out of the water, and, like, just claims the micro-genre for himself again. I I actually don't know if I had any more to say to that. It's, just, it's, oh. so, I, it's weird looking at this that, like, there's parallels to Paul Blart Mall Cop. I don't... It's, <laughs> anytime I have to think about Paul Blart Mall Cop, it is a notable experience. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a Hollywood pattern, though, right? Like, there was, you know, Armageddon and Deep Impact came out in the same year. And there was one year in the late 80s, early 90s, where there were two Christopher Columbus movies that were, like, huge deal productions. Like, it kind of, it happens fairly frequently. Like, I think it's, like, a notable thing. I think it's, that, like... Uh, things happen in patterns. I remember reading about Bugs Life and Ants coming out at the same time because uh, one of the people from Pixar, like, the was or one of the disney heads was like switch companies to dreamworks when it came out so he had that idea and like pitched it and yeah it's it's like a relatively common occurrence i think because of that people just want to compete with each other sometimes i think it even happens just out of spite like someone might be jealous of that idea and be like oh i can do it better and then they like compete to come out at relatively the same time um well that's yeah. the that's the asylum's whole mo right like Mm. Not not that the asylum makes quote good movies, but their whole thing is they hear about a, some kind of movie being made and then they rush something into production to capitalize. Yeah, like it's not a mistake that Atlantic Rim came out less than six months after Pacific Rim. <laughs> <laughs> I think I actually heard I actually heard about exactly that with Observe and Report. Like I think I don't know if Observe and Report was on like the that one list of really good scripts that are unproduced. I think the blacklist is what it's called. I don't think Observe and Report was on that, but it was a <laughs> script that had been passed around a little bit. And like one guy like one guy got got it, wrote his own script, and then he found out it was going into production. He's like, Adam Sandler, quickly, we need to make Paul Blart. <laughs> I mean, that would make sense. 
I think probably spite does play a big part in it too. Yeah. I mean, that was a whole, I don't know if you guys watched Curb Your Enthusiasm, but there was a whole subplot last year, the year before where Larry David builds a cafe out of spite. And it oh. felt like a metaphor <laughs> for the filmmaking business. Yeah. It was actually a good subplot. Um, yeah. Also, uh, what? I'm trying to think of other examples. 2013 was uh, Friends with Benefits and No Strings Attached. Uh, both of like the exact same plot. Both came out the same year. Uh, mm-hmm. That was also weird. And it was weird because it starred with Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher were married at the time, I think. And they were both in like different movies that were exactly the same. It's kind of funny. Yeah. And one of those movies is clearly better than the other. I actually haven't. Wait, which one's better? No strings attached is better. Really? Oh, okay. That's yeah. the one I saw. If, I if only, if only because of Natalie Portman. But oh, it's just I a better see, movie. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It's 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 kind of cool when that happens. So I guess like marketing wise, it makes like theoretically, if a movie came out and it was really good, and like people were like, "I want more of this," then like I could see that strategy working. I can't think of an example where it actually worked, but like. I could understand where these companies might be coming from, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think it worked because like Deep Impact and Armageddon both came out, again, both came out in the same year and they're both fondly remembered for different reasons, right? Mm, yeah. Same with like um, The Prestige and The Illusionist both came out yeah, within, I think, a year of one another as well. I remember that. Now, yeah. And uh, I mean, to be fair, I don't really know anyone who like actively remembers The Illusionist, but they are both good movies, well regarded in their moment, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I think it happens all the time. I mean, how many examples yeah. have we rattled off just in like five minutes? We've been talking about this, yeah. like a dozen. And that's without doing like any research. Yeah, that's weird. I, I like when I was putting together the document for this, I thought it was like a more unique occurrence than it is, but like not, not at all, really. It's actually kind of surprising how much. Yeah, how much we how much like we all just rattled off without I haven't opened a new tab on my computer since we started this. So <laughs> Yeah, this is all just information that's in my brain, which, <laughs> which is maybe shocking, I don't know. But uh yeah, it's uh it's definitely I think it's it is it is definitely a thing. It's it's a very Hollywood thing. That these things happen in patterns and 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 especially it's I think it's usually two, but then in in years like 2013 you get three, sometimes more. Mm-hmm. And then the also rands that come out a few years, you know, years after, right? Right. Yeah, and uh, I definitely remember in 2013 a lot of people talking about this is the end, but uh, I don't think I even heard about Rapture Palooza until earlier this year. So I guess that probably doesn't bode exactly well for our review <laughs> of it. But yeah. Let's uh, start talking about Rapture Palooza here in just a minute. We'll we'll come back from a break and then we'll talk about Rapture Palooza. See, it all started with the Rapture. Bring it out! Oh, he's so dumb. What is that? I think it's raining blood. Oh well, that's great. Now it's all smeared. Ow! Stop you little fuck! Whatever. I will destroy you. Well, I'm so scared right now. We were screwed. My name is Beast. He's the Antichrist, Dad. He's the Antichrist. He's the Antichrist. He's not as bad as everybody says. Oh, come on! Orlando! Satan! It does seem like he could be locked up. Yeah, that's what's going to happen, apparently. He's going to be locked up for a thousand years. By God. Yes. Why for just a thousand years? Why not forever? You have him. Why would you let him go? Why couldn't we do this? Do what? Lock him up? This is what you gotta do. You go with this beast guy, you have a great night out, and at the end, knife him. She should knife him. Yeah, I just said that. She should knife him. These are from him. Coronations. Now it's time for romance. Let her go, Antichrist! No! I killed Jimmy Neutron! Hold him mercy. I'm a with a good heart and leave a trail to find my way. Where's that? It's coming right at us. Ben, wait! You barbecued my son. I panicked. I laser beamed him. I beamed Jesus. I'm so sorry. 
The rapture show's on! This guy's on a toilet! Oh! <laughs> I saw it coming and I still laughed. Hello everyone and welcome back to part two of the episode where we will be talking about the movie with Anna Kendrick in it. And that movie happens to be an apocalypse movie named Rapture Palooza. A uh, very interesting title. Pierre, you wanna you wanna summarize this? Oh God. Um. Or do you want me to? <laughs> please, you. Yeah, I was really confused. Which is shocking, considering how much exposition this movie has. <laughs> I was the problem was I was having trouble staying focused. I'm gonna be honest. Oh no, but that's totally fair. Exposition flew over my head. No, like if if you were having trouble following this movie, despite the fact that it had a lot of exposition, like. I feel like anyone would have trouble following this movie. There's like, there's nothing notable that yeah. happens in this movie. So in, in this movie, um, the rapture happens. That's the first thing that happens. And Anna Kendrick talks about it for like five minutes. So you know that the rapture happens in this movie. And uh, Anna Kendrick is left over with her. She's left on earth with her boyfriend, John Francis Daly. And they just sort of continue living their lives in, in the post-apocalypse there's a bunch of like demons that come to earth and like kill a bunch of people right away. But eventually like they just sort of become part of the landscape as well. And so a a couple of months after the rapture, the entire world has gone to, you know, some kind of a new normal, but just, you know, life continues as normal all the same. And the, the United States, at least, I guess the world is run by a former mayor who's now going by the beast that's Craig Robinson and he's the antichrist. And then like when he meets Anna Kendrick, he decides that she is going to be his demonic bride and bear him a lot of antichrist children so that when he dies, he can come back as Satan. I don't fully understand how those two things relate, but they do somehow. I guess that's kind of it. Like that's the basic plot of this movie. I guess jokes are supposed to happen, but I don't know that they do. Did I Whoa. miss anything important? No, you didn't. Not at all. <laughs> and to be fair, there are jokes in the movie. They're just all bad. I counted two that I thought were pretty funny. Early on, they like talk about the demonic enforcer, the wraiths basic is what they're called. Basically demonic enforcers who come to earth and start killing people right after the rapture. But uh, in the same sentence, they say, but they sort of got bored after a couple of months and just all became potheads. I thought that was kind of a funny joke. And then at the end, there's a scene where Anna Kendrick and her boyfriend, I guess spoilers, if you're going to watch this movie, are shooting the Antichrist, but she runs out of bullets in her gun and he's still alive. So she has her boyfriend run run all around his property, picking up more guns so that she can keep shooting the Antichrist. That was the part in the movie that got a real laugh out of me. That one joke there. Yeah, I laughed at that too, but it was really like, I don't know who was laughing at the joke. I don't know why I was laughing at it, to be totally honest. Like it started out being like, okay, she's got a second gun. And then you're like, okay, it's still going. And then you're like, oh, God, it's still going. And then eventually you're like, it's still going. You know? <laughs> it it might have been one of those jokes, like, in Mike and Dave get wedding dates, or need wedding dates, there's a joke, there's, there's one sex joke that goes on for 10 minutes. And, like, by the 10th minute, like, early on, it's kind of funny. And then a little bit later, 30 seconds later, it's not funny anymore. But then by the time that joke's been going on for five minutes, then it's it's funny again because of how long this absurd, like, uncomfortable scene has been going on. And, like, it's long outstayed its welcome, which is itself kind of funny, which maybe maybe this is the same kind of thing, except that it doesn't it doesn't overstay its welcome quite that long, that much. But still, you know, same thing. Yeah, and there's definitely, I think I laughed at a couple of the times, because the Antichrist keeps getting up and getting shot again, and every time he gets up, Craig Robinson improvs a line, and a couple of them were chuckle-worthy. I couldn't quote them to you now, even though I watched this literally yesterday or the day before, but a couple of them I was like, <laughs> cute. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, Craig Robinson is a funny guy, which is the weirdest thing about this movie. Everyone in this movie is a funny guy. There's no bad comedians in this movie. They just aren't funny in this movie. 
Yeah, it's like it's full of people who I generally find to be pretty hilarious and doing a style of comedy that normally really appeals to me that I, I wasn't funny. It's like they use the bad the bad take every time. <laughs> it's, you know, like I'm sure they improved a lot of it and they just chose I don't know who was choosing which take to use, but none of them were good. So, uh, Pierre, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I didn't like it. <laughs> Speaking of the improv, like, yeah, I noticed a lot of improv. I just don't, I don't understand why they picked Anna Kendrick for as an improv actress. Like, she doesn't seem like she has, like, the... I've never seen her as, like, an improv person, if that makes sense. And there was another movie that she was in that was largely improv. I'm trying to remember. Was it the, I think it felt the Zac Efron one, right? The... So she, we've actually watched at least two, like Drinking Buddies and oh, Happy yeah. Christmas were both improv. The Zac well, Efron one, like well, Mike sorry, and Dave, I think improv. that was also a little bit improv. Um, I don't know how much improv that was, but like definitely a little bit. Okay. Um, yeah, anyways, like I, I don't know. She doesn't really feel like a, a great improv actress to me. So, And also a lot of the people, like the, the guy that played the boyfriend was really not good in this movie either. He was really boring i think rob cordry did pretty well but he's like a really well-trained improv actor from what i know well he was also just playing rob cordry like he's yeah, playing a character was, he always plays <laughs> it's the rob yeah. cordry character yeah and the same can be said of um uh what's his name rob hugh hubel the the guy who plays like the lead yeah. bodyguard always oh, kind of yeah, play. Well, not always but he he always often plays, plays the same yeah always plays the same type of character and usually i find it really funny but this time i really didn't yeah that's what, like, I, I don't know, it, it felt like, I like, I kind of like the energy in the movie, it's just a lot of the jokes felt way too winky, winky face, like, the whole, like, bugs telling people, like, what was it, like, suffer or something like that? Uh, I think it was, oh yeah, it, like, it was stuck. it was bugs and also crows. crows, they replaced all of the, like, normal bird sounds with just swear words. Yeah, it just felt oh, really yeah, childish. Oh yeah, the crows, like... Yeah, very, like, insulting everyone. Yeah, it felt yeah. like something, like, a 13-year-old would write and be like, oh, my God, this is, like, this is hilarious. So, and that's basically the whole movie. It's, like, a lot of jokes that are, like, a little... I think there's a lot of scenes in this movie that could really work as, like, one Saturday Night Live sketch. Like, I, I really think that the the scene where she has to keep shooting Craig Robinson, you take that out, you workshop it just a little bit, it would be really funny as, like you know, a, a pre-recorded sketch right before they go to break in Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yeah, potentially. Yeah, like, that's a good point. There's like little glimmers of maybe something. Yeah, it, it didn't really feel like a movie in a lot of ways. But I, I don't know. I, there were like little things I like. I like the whole, like the drawing. I like I like that thing where they draw out the plan. I like that. Um, mm-hmm. That was cute. And I like the little thought bubble thing too. I actually can't remember the last time I've seen that in a movie. I thought that was kind of cool too. Yeah, you know, I watched this movie less than two days ago, and I don't remember that. Though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like those, but also they they were kind of you know that does they don't make the movie good in any way. I don't know if this was a mistake, but I watched this movie and then immediately watched This Is the End. And mostly when I think back to this movie, I just remember seeing This Is the End afterwards and how that movie was so much better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is so much better. Yeah, it was very and much. That movie like, is like. Sorry, I, I might be biased because that movie is made specifically for me, right? Like, right. I'm I'm not friends with any of those people in real life, but like Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg are from Vancouver. They are in my age group, like within a year of me. Almost all the jokes are jokes about things that I grew up with that I think are funny. Like even the Backstreet Boys gag at the end is very rooted in like being a Canadian guy around my age, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, but it's also just funny. And I think, honestly, I think the difference is that, I mean, other than the writing being better, I think also that everyone in This is the End, as soon as they realize they've been left behind, they all start striving to figure out how they can basically get to heaven. And most of them figure out, well, I have to strive to be a better person. And in this one, literally every character is like, well, I've been left behind. I guess I'm an asshole. And that is the end of their character development. Like, there's mm-hmm. just any. Like yeah. there's no there's no overriding theme of self improvement or even questioning why they were left behind. Everyone who was left behind seems to understand that they're a prick, 
and mm-hmm. they're all just it's just a world full of pricks now and it's not it's not funny when everyone's a prick for no reason <laughs> yeah well also i guess kind of related if these aren't both largely improv movies they are both movies with people that are largely known for improv and like this is the end is just a much better situation for that because it's a bunch of people it's a bunch of funny people at a party doing what they would normally be doing but exaggerated versions of themselves and like with rapture palooza if this is supposed to be an improv movie they've set up a very contrived situation and have a very specific plot they need to follow, which doesn't really allow for much wiggle room. And like, you know, the less room you have for improv, the less funny improv you're going to be able to deliver, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it requires yeah, a lot sure. of patience and like kind of room in the script, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Like, you're kind of right, especially like the this is the end. I think, like, I think a lot of like the the cues for humor are very similar. Like, they're both very like have like very childish. A lot of ways sexual humor but like it's just like for some reason this is the end was just done more tastefully because of the character development i think because of the train for improv actors and because of uh i don't know it's just it was like a little this is the end isn't subtle but like it's a lot more subtle than rapture palooza like it, it it was just all like in your face it was it was too much there's some scenes where like the guys are kind of being creepy and this is the end, but it doesn't never comes off as like bad. But those scenes with Craig Robinson, when he's trying to like seduce Anna Kendrick in Rapture Palooza just felt came off as really creepy. And like, that's because he's never trying to seduce her. He's literally just trying to sexually assault her the whole time. Yeah. And that's just like, it was a very extended joke that wasn't funny at all from the start. So like, I don't really, it's just stuff like that. That was like really, threw you off and they didn't know when to give up on that joke either it just kept going like that was basically the whole plot of the movie was he's trying to sexually assault her and she wants to get out of it and it's like that's that's just like that's just kind of feels weird i don't know to watch it was kind of uncomfortable i think it definitely comes back to what matthew said with like in in rapture palooza you can just have one character just try to sexually assault another character for the entire length of the movie because there's no character development. They just don't even try to develop those characters in that movie. Wherein this is the end. The one scene that we're that you're talking about where everyone does come across as really, really creepy, like that is used as a character moment. Like whether or not that's in good taste is another discussion entirely, but like that's used as a character moment where they don't come out of that with nothing. They come out of that having permanently changed the situation they're in and having to really think about what they've done. Where in Rapture Palooza, there's there's no situations like that. Like there's nothing where there's even the attempt at any characters not necessarily getting better, but even growing as characters in any direction. Yeah, and even in This Is the End, like I think what makes part of what makes it work is that. All of, them, all of them start striving to change and most of them start striving to change to try to be better people to get into heaven, except for Danny McBride, who just goes, well, I guess I'm here. I'll just revel in it and just becomes like the worst version of himself. But that's mm-hmm. still change, right? Whereas Ravager Palooza, they are static throughout. Like nobody, nobody learns anything really. And even when they try to have a theme at the end where they do learn and grow, it doesn't, it doesn't work because they haven't worked for it. They haven't earned it. Yeah, there's that whole big exposition dump at the very beginning, where by the end of the exposition dump, the world has permanently changed, the characters have permanently changed, and now that we're at the end of the exposition dump, there's no change anymore. So it's like all of the actual character growth, like, we never got to see Rob Corddry become the piece of shit he's supposed to be in this movie, because that happened during the exposition dump. And so I don't know if that would have been interesting to see, but it wasn't here. So it doesn't, so like, you know, there's one character who doesn't grow at all. He just, I, does Rob I think stuff. it, I think it would have been super interesting to see one scene where like the first Wraith smokes pot that like yeah. causes that chain reaction that they're all potheads now, mm. but mm-hmm. we're just told that that's what's happened. And that's how it is at the beginning of the story. Yeah. It's a lot mm-hmm. less funny that way. It's, it actually kind of seems with all of that exposition, with that big exposition dump, whoever wrote this movie, uh, which I'm going to find out, Chris Matheson, 
had a lot of interesting world building ideas and created this world that I'm sure he's super proud of because it's an interesting world. Like the fact that all wraiths are potheads is an interesting concept if you work towards it. It's just that like he does all of the world building off screen and like doesn't leave any of it at all for us to see. Yeah. What's really interesting to me about this is that Chris Matheson isn't necessarily like a bad, like he helped, he co-created Bill and Ted. Like Mm -hmm. he, he wrote a goofy movie, which is, you know, among a certain age group, a beloved film. He also wrote a movie called Mr. Wrong, which uh, was a, like an Ellen DeGeneres thing, which is not good, but like was a big star vehicle at the time. Like I'm saying he's written a lot of stuff and not all of it is bad. I don't really know how this got to be so bad. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying too, is like, the world building is there. He clearly wrote some cool stuff for this movie. It's just that, I mean, when he wrote the movie, the movie's not the cool stuff, which is weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he obviously, he co-created Bill and Ted with Ed Solomon, so maybe he needs a writing partner. And there's no shame in that. Lots of people work best in, in a duo or a group. The things that I have seen of these, I'm looking at his list of things that he's written, the ones that are strongest, at least the ones that I've seen that are strongest, he always has a writing partner. So maybe he just needs someone to tell him, you know, these are the cool parts of your script, focus on these. This did definitely feel like something, like a first draft or second draft. or Because I, I guess I do see the similarities. I feel like in some ways, obviously the content of the humor isn't very similar, but I feel like the delivery in some ways, I see the comparison with at least the third Bill and Ted, like lots of celebrity, like the celebrity cameo stuff. And like, it's like the, I don't know, I guess like the, not the unsubtle jokes, I guess, but it just has a charm in Bill and Ted that this one just doesn't really connect with. I don't know. Anyways. Hmm. Well, I can tell you, I was definitely thinking of the wrong Mr. Wrong. So there's that. (laughs) That's a terrible movie too. (laughs) So, yeah, maybe he definitely needs a writing partner. <laughs> well, overall, uh, how would you how would you compare this to other Anna Kendrick movies we've watched? I'm going to start with you, Pierre. Uh, this is definitely on the lower end. I can't remember being this bored watching. Like, I guess like the concept honestly was kind of interesting, um, but it really lost me like really quickly, and uh, I was really mm-hmm. bored for such a short movie. I was. Uh, very bored so um i don't know this definitely wait is it, i'm sorry is this the, the movie or anna kendrick herself uh i mean both but oh, like okay. you just said the movie so the movie yeah not great anna kendrick yeah i don't know i i don't really i didn't really like her in this either i thought a lot of there's a lot of much more uh appropriate actresses for this type of movie that could have started in this i guess so also lower end matthew what would you say in comparison to the anna kendrick movies you've watched I mean, honestly, it was just, uh, this movie kind of committed the, the cardinal movie sin in that, um, Pierre had it right. It's just kind of boring. It's mm-hmm. not even interesting bad. It's just boring. And that's probably like the big death knell for any rating for me. I thought that she was fine in context, I guess. I don't think she did anything that the, you know, that the writer director didn't ask of her, but there wasn't really much to work with either. Right. So it's kind of, kind of a tough one. Um, It's probably towards the bottom of the list for all of those reasons for me. I think I said it to you when you asked me if this movie was any good before you watched it, that like, it's fine in that comedy central TV sort of way. Like this is the kind of movie that I'll, first off, I'll guarantee you it's run on comedy central at like 2 PM before there's no way it hasn't, but like, you know, when I was home from school, you know, turn on TV and like this might be running on Comedy Central as a as an excuse for them to put up a bunch of Taco Bell ads or something. So mm-hmm. like it's it's there. It's at 2 p.m. because no one's watching TV at that time. And like as soon as as soon as this is over, they're going to run five hours of South Park or something <laughs> like that's kind of what this felt like to me. And yeah, I would agree with you guys. Definitely on the lower end because it's just boring. And as far as Anna Kendrick performances go, I think also 
this one's probably like one of the worst on the list because again, it's just a boring performance. I barely remember her presence in it at all because I barely remember this movie, but like she didn't do much to help that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, Anna Kendrick. This was, this was a miss. I mean, it's okay. We all have duds in our filmographies. Those of us who actually have them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. You don't get an up in the air without having a few rapture paloozas. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she put in her time. She was in the Twilight movies, so she's allowed to have a few bad ones. <laughs> she was she was really good in one of those. I, I really like the last Twilight, but that's just me. But she's not in that one. That's the only that's one, the only she's, one not she's, in. she's not in, yeah. I mean, she is technically in the end credits montage. So, like, yeah. that kind of counts. Well, anyway, thank you once again, Matthew, for coming on. And uh, where can listeners find more of you? Uh, well, the Awesome Friday podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts, but also you can find links to all of our stuff at awesomefriday.ca. Uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram at awesomefridayca. Uh, we're on Facebook, Awesome Friday. We're most places we're Awesome Friday. It's it's branding. It's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, awesomefriday.ca is the best way to find the site, and then you can find me on mostly on Twitter at, at af. And I will link to all of that in the show notes. Excellent. All right. So next week, um, Pierre, do you know what we're talking about next week? Mm, I can tell you if you I don't. I don't, yeah. Next, next week, we're going to do we're gonna do two movies again. We're going to talk about Get a Job and Table 19. Very cool. Table 19 looks cool. I'm excited for that one. And Get a Job has has Miles Teller, so no, oh, that God. might might be something. I don't know. <laughs> the, the one time that we like started mentioning Sam Worthington a lot, he ended up being in one of these movies and was really good, in it. or at least the movie was good. So hopefully, Get a Job will be the same. <laughs> Which one had Sam Worthington in it? Cake with Jennifer Aniston. All right, right. That's a good movie.